Welcome to episode 85 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Harriet, Ruth, and Becky. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Harriet, Ruth, and Becky, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. What did you think when you first heard the statement that alcoholism is a disease? Did it seem like a cop-out? Did you feel that your loved one just needed to drink normally? Today, I explore my personal journey of coming to my current understanding of this cunning, baffling, and powerful thing called alcoholism. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of alcoholism. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show is my discussion of the topic, alcoholism. Following a short break, I'll talk about my life in recovery, about how I practice these principles in all my affairs. We'll follow that with your email and voice contributions, and some brief news about the podcast before closing. I'd like to start with a reading. This is from our book, How Elanon Works. It's from Chapter 5, Becoming Aware. It's the first paragraph of the section titled, Recognizing Alcoholism. Sometimes we don't recognize alcoholism even when it is staring us in the face. Having lived with drinking for many years, we may have accepted it as normal and never felt overly concerned. Perhaps we envisioned alcoholics as filthy, rag-clad derelicts and never considered that our well-kempt, successful friend or relative might be an alcoholic. Even if his or her drinking obviously is excessive, it never occurred to us that reactions to a long-forgotten alcoholic relative could have an effect on our everyday lives years later, or that we could be adversely affected by a relationship with a sober alcoholic. Illusions about alcoholism abound, and most of us simply were not aware of the nature of the disease or of its impact on us, the families and friends of alcoholics. Ignorance is neither a sin nor a crime, but it is an obstacle to seeing our situation realistically. So I'm going to start start at the beginning. Huh? Alcoholism is... You know, I don't, it's, it's not something that, that I ever, I think, thought about as a, uh, as a young person. I think I knew there were such thing as drunks and, and I had that picture that, uh, you know, came to us from, I don't know, movies, TV of the, uh, the alcoholic, the drunk as, uh, somebody who was, uh, at best slovenly, um, couldn't really take care of themselves was, uh, you know, always slurring and staggering and, uh, you know, maybe sometimes they'd, they'd be fun. They'd, they'd, uh, you know, dance with a lampshade on their head or something like that. I don't know. Um, you know, just the image that I had is, is whatever society gave me, whatever media gave me, whatever I saw in movies and television, I had no, no realistic picture of, of alcoholism at all. And I had, had no concept of alcoholism as a disease for sure. I grew up with uh, what you call normal drinking, I think, that uh, my family, my parents might have had a glass of wine at dinner. They had a well-stocked liquor cabinet for parties, and stuff stayed in there. You know, uh, My father might have a glass of sherry sometimes before dinner, particularly on a weekend, uh, or during the summer, during the holidays. Um, and drinking was not just, it was not an issue in the family I grew up in. I, I later came to know that uh, there, in fact, were are some alcoholics in my extended family. But uh, certainly, growing up and and even much later, I had no concept of that at all. Drinking was something you did for fun, and and nobody I knew seemed to have a problem with it. So, what is this thing called alcoholism? I didn't know. And uh, so, moving moving along uh, quite a bit later in life, and. Uh, you know, get to a point, uh, mm, maybe t- 15 to 20 years ago, and uh, it seemed like uh, my loved one was drinking too much at times. 
And, uh, you know, there were occasions when, uh, her behavior might embarrass me. Um, and again, I thought that, uh, I just thought that, uh, you know, she needed to, to sort of cut back a little bit. She needed to, to control her drinking. And she started to see it as a problem. And, and she started, uh, I think, I'm, I, I don't remember the exact order of things, but I know she attended a couple of uh, classes, workshops, uh, whatever they were, uh, on drinking moderately. And uh, you may have heard of moderation management. I think that was one of them. And the her employer uh, had a, had another one that that they had for a while uh, that you know tried to teach people how to how to drink in a in a moderate fashion. At some point, um, she said to me, "I think I'm an alcoholic," and I thought, "Well, that can't be. You know, you're successful. You have a good job. Uh, you know, you get up in the morning, you go to work. We uh, we have a nice home." You know, you're not an alcoholic. You're not a drunk. I was not willing to to accept that that label because, again, I had this distorted image of of what it meant. Uh, and so, uh, she started going to an outpatient program and um, said, "Now they have this uh, this family program uh, on Saturday mornings." Uh, for, I think it was four weeks uh, and I'd like you to come. And I was like, well, okay. Uh, you know, maybe this will help. And I went in and, uh, you know, they talked to us about alcoholism. They, I really don't, you know, I don't remember in there that, that the word disease being used, but I, I imagine they probably did. And I remember seeing some posters. They had these posters with lots of faces of very, all different kinds of people. And, and uh, the caption on the poster said something like, alcoholism has many faces, or, you know, this sort of trying to normalize it, trying to uh, make those of us who had, you know, my image of, of what an alcoholic was to to say, well, you know, it's, it's not what you think. Um, it's everybody. It's all kinds of people. And I think I started to understand that, but I still was not willing to, to, to own that, that word. Um, so time went on, um, more, more treatment and, and I started to see the, uh, the progression, um, of, of her drinking as it got worse and worse. And I still didn't, I really didn't understand it. Um, you know, again, it was like, she just needs to drink normally or, you know, I was starting to come to this realization that maybe, maybe she needed to not drink, but I didn't really know, you know, what was going on. I remember, I remember taking her to, I think it was her first inpatient treatment. And I, I came home from work to pick her up and, and drive her up to the hospital. And she was, she was still packing and she was just really, really drunk. And I was like, why are you, you know, I don't get it. You know, you're going to this, to this treatment program to, to get sober. Why are you, you know, drinking why are you drunk before you go? Um, I, you know, I just didn't, I did not get it. I was angry. I was resentful. It was that program that introduced me to Al-Anon. Um, it was that, that the friends and family day that I went to at that program that, as I've described previously, brought me to the understanding that, um, you know, of those three C's that, that I didn't cause it. I could not cure it and I could not control it. And, that my life was unmanageable and that I, I could find help and I did. And I'm grateful. So I'm starting to, to see that, that this is something that maybe this is not just like, you know, she drinks too much. Maybe there's something else going on, but still not really getting it, really not getting it. I think I don't, I, I'm still not sure if I used the word alcoholic to describe her at that point and took another, Another treatment center, um, a residential treatment center this time, with, again, friends and family day that was all day. Um, uh, for Well, it was a four-week um, lecture series. Each day we'd come in, we'd get the lecture. There'd be a group therapy session. There'd be, 
we'd have some time to, you know, have lunch or something and then more group therapy in the afternoon and maybe a meeting with the individual therapist. Really, you know, fairly intensive for both as well as really intensive for her. She was living there, but uh, pretty intensive for me. And it was at this point that, and it was these, these, uh, lectures before the day at the beginning of the day that I really started to hear the message of alcoholism as a disease. And, uh, I don't remember, you know, exactly what all the lectures were about. I know there was one about um, sort of the genetic basis of alcoholism um, with evidence of alcoholism being inherited in families uh, in different ways that, that what for most people, and I, and I don't know if it was the same one or not, but, but he talked about there being several factors um, that went into uh, determining whether alcoholism would develop just as, um, and I think the disease of, of diabetes, the adult onset diabetes was a good example here that you have um, a, an inherited tendency. Uh, so susceptibility, some people are more susceptible than others because of their genetics. There's exposure to, in this case, alcohol um, for a period of time um, and at some level of intensity. And, and if you, and I think there was another factor I can't remember right now, but if you put all those factors together, um, you have a higher or lower risk of, um, the disease sort of developing and, and, and coming out and, and, and the drinking progressing to what we would call alcoholic drinking, which is, um, when, uh, as, as I came to understand it, uh, to define it, uh, that uh, not being able to say ahead of time how much you're going to drink. Um, you know, that uh, the saying that one drink is too many and ten is not enough applies here, I think. Um, <laughs> I remember one of the guests on the uh, Recovered podcast recently, they were talking about uh, you know, the definition of binge drinking being more than five drinks in a setting, uh, a session, or whatever. And, uh, this person said, oh, my binge was 20, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing, um, that, that I came to see was that the, the first drink just sort of, um, opened the gate and, and from there on out, it, it was not predictable. Was it going to be a few more? Was it going to be a bunch more? Was it going to be a year more? Um, and, and I had seen that I, I start, I, I saw that happen later. So that was, that was, there was that, um, there was, uh, I remember a lecture about the effect of alcohol and I suppose other drugs, um, on the brain, on the brain chemistry, on the way the brain functions. And, um, you know, the, the different parts of the brain, and I don't remember all the details now, but, um, one of the things I remember was that I'm talking about how, um, that, that extended drinking, alcoholic drinking actually made physical changes to the brain and to the brain function. And that, it, that these changes were detectable up to five years after somebody stopped drinking. And I sort of remember thinking five years, that's like forever, you know, um, that's crazy. That can't be true. That was kind of like, um, daunting. Yeah. Five years. Whoa. Um, you know, maybe we could get a few months here. Okay. But five years, I don't know. Um, and, uh, the other, the other, um, thing that I remember from these lectures was talking about craving and talking about, um, the, uh, um, I forget the, the, the term exactly, but, but sort of this hierarchy of, of needs that, you know, we need air to breathe, to, to survive. We need air all the time. We need water frequently. Um, we need food and each of these has, and, and we need to be able to, uh, to procreate, uh, and each of these has sort of a descending, um, level of need that, you know, people can go their whole lives without, without having sex, that people can go for a very long time without food. People can go for a shorter period of time without water. And of course you can't go for very long at all without, without air. And that as the need sort of intensifies if you, um, you know, if you don't have water that, 
for longer and longer, you get more and more desperate and you're more and more willing to, to, to hurt yourself, to do other things that you wouldn't consider doing in order to get water. And, and what he said was that the craving for alcohol can be that strong, that, that people are willing when they're in the grips of that disease, when they're in the grips of that craving to do all kinds of things to get what they feel that they need and, and that it can be as strong as, um, your body's need for water, the feeling that you get when you're just really, really thirsty. Um, and, uh, and I thought, wow, that's, you know, again, that's, a, you know, just sort of eye opening, I guess. Um, and I know there was a lecture about recovery and relapse and talking about picking up a drink is the end of the process of relapse, not the beginning. Um, that one was, was a lot fuzzier for me. I, had to see it happen in reality, I think, uh, to really understand it. But so anyway, these lectures and um, probably the group therapy sessions and all, and coming to Al-Anon and hearing other people's stories, I mean, it all kind of comes together, hard to say um, what, but started to develop an intellectual understanding of this concept of alcoholism as a disease. Oh, I was talking about diabetes and uh, adult onset diabetes has this same sort of pattern that you inherit a tendency and then your behavior uh, can keep that tendency from ever expressing uh, or it can cause it to de- start to develop and then, you know, you can change your behavior and, and put it back in remission um, or it can take it into full, full-blown full diabetes. And, the, you know, behavior here has to do with things like what you eat how much you weigh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that, that it's, it's a pretty good model for, um, the same thing with alcoholism, why some people get it and some people don't. Um, and also that, uh, the, the other part of the analogy is, is diabetes is a chronic disease. It's not something that you cure. It's something you can put into remission by treating it appropriately, whether that's through diet and exercise or through insulin and similarly with alcoholism, that um, it is a chronic disease that you can put into remission by treating it properly uh, or or not. Um, and that there are various treatments available. Uh, but one of the differences and the, the really significant difference between alcoholism and uh, diabetes is that, you know, diabetes is a disease of the pancreas. And the pancreas doesn't have a whole lot of day-to-day, moment-to-moment effect on your behavior. Whereas alcoholism is a disease of the brain, and the brain obviously has a moment-to-moment, day-to-day, year-to-year effect on your behavior. And so um, being a disease of the brain, it's, it's a disease that is sort of can be self-perpetuating. It's a d- disease that can deny itself because um, in the expression of the disease, um, you do change your behavior. And these behaviors that come out um, are expressions of the disease, but we see them as behaviors of the person and judge the person by them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that uh, contributes to this image of, you know, self, lack of self-control. It contributes to this image of dereliction, this image of uh, it is a, um, a choice. You know, you could choose to stop drinking. You could choose to stop you know, eating sugar, you could choose to take your insulin. Um, you know, and people relapse in, in, in diabetes and people relapse in alcoholism. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities there. There really is. But the thing, you know, for me, the thing that really brought it home, that, that alcoholic drinking for an alcoholic is not a choice, that it's a symptom of, of a disease was attending, uh, open talks in the AA program. Um, we in our area are, are blessed that there are several meetings that, uh, are in this format. Uh, they're there where an alcoholic will get up and tell their story for maybe 45 minutes, half an hour to 45 minutes. And, uh, the story in the form as it is traditionally put, uh, what, what it was like, in other words, what it was like during the time of the drinking or drugging, uh, what happened, uh, how did they come to, to generally, how did they come to AA? How did they come to sobriety? Um, and what is it like now? What is it like living a life in recovery? And 
I probably, I have gone, I'm sure I've gone to over a hundred of these. Um, I, I used to go every week for a, at least a couple of years. And, and so there's a hundred right there. And, uh, you know, every week it would be a different person. Um, you know, maybe male, maybe female, maybe young, maybe old, maybe, uh, came from, you know, an upstanding religious family, maybe didn't, maybe, you know, maybe Catholic, maybe Protestant, maybe atheist, um, maybe white, maybe black, maybe, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of variation, maybe rich, maybe poor. But what I started to see was that the arc of the story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, the arc of the story was very similar, particularly the what it was like part. Some people's story arced a lot further down than other people's, but the story was the same. And the story was something like this. It, it usually starts out with, you know, I always felt a little bit apart from, from everybody. I always felt different. I never always felt like I didn't fit in. And then I had a drink or I took a drug and all of a sudden I fit in. All of a sudden I could be with people and be comfortable. I could be comfortable in my skin and I wanted more of that. And then and, and alcohol or the drug gave that to me. And then after a while, it stopped giving it to me. And I started taking more and more. And then my life just became a search for the next fix, the next drink. And then something happened, you know, some kind of a bottom, if you will. Something happened and I just couldn't do it anymore. And maybe I ended up in a recovery center or I walked into an AA meeting or, or something. Um, and I heard this story over and over and over. And sometimes it was, you know, maybe the worst thing that happened sometimes was they lost a job. Maybe the worst thing that happened was just life was really hard. Or maybe the worst thing that happened was they almost died. Um, maybe they were in jail. Uh, and I remember vividly one, one young woman uh, talking about her first drink. Um, she was a young teen. I don't remember 14, maybe. And she and some friends, uh, sh had shared some beers. They, I think she, she said they had one for each of them and they each drank their beer and, and the other girls were like, Oh, that was cool. Okay. You know, I feel kind of fuzzy. And she said she, the only thing she could think about for the rest of the night was where she was going to get another one. How could she have more of this? Because whatever it was, it felt so wonderful. And I thought, this is not something she learned. This is not a choice she made. This is just how her brain and body react to alcohol. That just, it really, it really drove it home to me. And, and there were many stories like that. So coming to see that arc of the story, that one story in many voices, that one story in many lives was what I think really brought me to accept wholly that this is a disease. This is something about the way some, some people's brains and bodies are wired about their body chemistry, about their, their brain hookups that they react to alcohol or drugs differently than I do. Because, you know, I can take a drink and, you know, it's, it's gives me that nice little buzz. And then, I'm done. I mean, I might have, you know, a few more depending if I'm with friends or something and, and we're celebrating or just, uh, but I don't have that need to keep on drinking. It just isn't there. And you know, when I've had enough, I don't feel like drinking more. And my alcoholic friends tell me this is not true for them, that, that there is never enough. Uh, and so it, it's, Yes, it's a disease. We don't completely understand it. We don't understand its mechanism. We don't understand necessarily where it comes from. But I think there's, there is some progress happening. And, but one of the things that happens, and, and one of the reasons that I, I feel that it's more than a medical problem, is that, again, from my understanding of what I've heard from, from many stories, that 
you know, there's several parts to this. One is the effect that that alcohol has on the body, but the other is um, it's a spiritual component. You know, I said many of these stories start out with somebody saying, I never felt at home in my body. I never felt like other people. And this is the part of of what's going on that programs like the 12-step program are designed to address. And some people, you know, a lot of people find sobriety through the 12 steps um, because it treats that spiritual part of the disease. Other people find sobriety through religion um, or through therapy. And, you know, all of these are, are whatever works. That's kind of my feeling, whatever works. And that it's just that, that the whole person I think for this disease, the whole person needs to be treated. It's not enough to take a drug that um, dulls the craving or take a drug that makes you sick if, if you, if you drink as and abuse does uh, sort of aversion therapy there. Um, this is my belief. This is all my personal belief. Um, I believe that for most alcoholics and addicts that the whole person has to be addressed. You can't just take a pill and be done. Um, you know, and I'm sure there are people that that works for, and that's wonderful for them. So this disease concept, I talked about brain chemistry. The disease denies itself um, because that's the only way it can keep on going. Um, the person has to be able to say, I don't have a problem. Because when they really accept, when somebody really accepts that they have a problem, then that's the first step towards treating the disease and, and, you know, the disease is selfish. The disease wants to keep on going. You know, you get a cold or the measles or, you know, some other physical disease like that. And the disease organism that is causing it wants to keep on going. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you have to fight it with, with, uh, you know, a fever or with drugs or with, you know, antibodies, um, or it's going to take over. And, and it's the same thing with the disease of alcoholism and addiction. It, it takes over. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had this image at some point um, after I had understood this that, and before my loved one found sobriety that, um, you know, this sort of image of, of her in a, in a car and, and she's the passenger maybe sitting in the back seat and, the, and alcoholism is driving the car crazy. Um, you know, all over the road, speeding, et cetera. And, and she's sitting in the back seat screaming, unable to do anything about it. Um, you know, I've said alcoholism is a chronic disease. This is my belief again. And this is the understanding that I get from listening to people who have, have studied it. It, it will be with, um, it will be with the person forever, the possibility of, of, of relapse, just as with diabetes, just as with cancer. It can be treated, it can be taken into remission, um, but it's always there. You know, cancer is never cured. Cancer is only ever in remission. And and people say, yeah, cured after five years or ten years. Well, I know people who were clean for five years and it came back. Um, same thing happens with alcoholism. It's progressive. Uh, and again, uh, you know, I've seen this, and um, my alcoholic friends report it to me that if if they, when they have relapsed after a period of sobriety, the disease immediately goes goes back to just about where it was when they stopped drinking and then starts to get worse. Progressive. It, it just continues to get worse and you can treat it. But, um, you know, when, when a relapse happens, it's, it's almost always worse than it was before. And unfortunately... Um, you know, there's a couple of endpoints for alcoholism. You can find sobriety. You can continue. I mean, many people continue to live for a long time, really in a really miserable life. Uh, and, or, you know, it's fatal. It's eventually fatal unless it's somehow um, arrested and, and, and treated. And, uh, you know, this is, this is why, um, you know, AA says you're in it for your life. I know, again, I know there are people who um, find their way to sobriety and and live a sober life uh, without 
without a, a program like Alcoholics Anonymous, without uh, but I believe that they have found some other, um, you know, spiritual treatment for uh, for what was ailing ailing them. So, uh, so going through this, coming to the disease concept, coming to understand that my loved one's drinking was not her choice, but that it, it was a symptom of a disease that she had, um, brought me to find uh, compassion and forgiveness for, uh, for her actions, because understanding that the actions are symptoms. And again, so as I said at the beginning, does this sound like a cop-out? Well, I can understand that you have a disease and that the symptoms of the disease um, are what they are. And then I can make a choice whether to endure those symptoms uh, or not. You know, If you've got the flu and I'm feeling fragile, I'm probably not going to come visit you so that you can sneeze in my general direction and I might get it. Um, if a loved one is alcoholic and is acting out from that alcoholism, I can choose whether um, I will have that person in my life or not. Uh, I can choose to maybe talk to that person when they're sober. And if they call me when they're drunk to say, I'm not talking to you now, goodbye. Uh, or to visit them when they're sober, to, uh, you know, I, I can make choices based on my understanding of the effect of the disease and my tolerance for the symptoms. And it also helps me to understand that because of the way that the disease, the disease denies itself because it's a, really a disease of the whole person, um, mind, body, and spirit, um, that it's very hard for anybody else like me um, to have an effect on it. Um, because again, like diabetes, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to, if, if my loved one had diabetes and, and was, you know, refusing to treat it, I mean, I would be very, uh, very unlikely to, to hold them down and forcibly inject insulin. I mean, just that's not who I am. Um, and, you know, in the long run, that probably wouldn't, wouldn't really work anyway. So, uh, you know, I can have compassion and understanding, but I can also set boundaries that allow me to um, live a life that's manageable, to live a life that's sustainable, and to do what I can um, to support a person that I love in, in their, in their own struggle with the disease, but to do it in a way that, that keeps me sane and healthy. And this is, you know, this is what happened in my life that, um, I found that compassion. I found that forgiveness. I found that understanding. And I said, yes, I will stay. I will do what I can. Um, and when she was really struggling, uh, and, and falling towards her bottom, uh, you know, I could be there as a friend, as a love, as a lover, but letting her, um, you know, find her path. Um, and, and she did, but, and, and I will say, you know, remember when I talked about that, uh, you know, brain, brain changes five years out, uh, you know, at least five or up to five years or something for the brain to recover from the physical effects of heavy drinking. And, um, you know, I wasn't really watching it, but what I noticed afterwards was that when my loved one hit her five-year mark in sobriety, I noticed some real changes um, in the way we were able to relate to each other um, and just in, in the way that um, she was much more uh, connected. Um, and, uh, you know, it's so, I don't know, you know. I was like, no, five years, that can't be true. But I think it, in my case, it certainly seems like there's, there's something real there. So that's, that's about what I've got with my journey. I wanted to read a little bit more here from How Al-Anon Works, where it talks about learning more about alcoholism. The more we know about alcoholism, the better able we are to cope with it. 
That's why Al-Anon encourages us to learn as much as possible about the disease. Reading Al-Anon literature every day has given many of us a profound insight into this family disease and how to deal with it successfully. Some of us also attend open AA meetings to learn about the alcoholic's experience. Hearing the stories of recovering alcoholics can be very eye-opening. Few of us realize that the alcoholics in our lives often suffer terribly, sometimes more than we do. By listening, we can learn to distinguish the person from the disease, to have compassion for their efforts and their pain, and to recognize that they too are powerless over alcohol. After a short break, we'll continue with uh, our lives in recovery, where I talk about uh, what's what's going on in my life, how I'm practicing the principles of the program. And uh, so the first uh, musical selection that I picked for this episode, and again, you can listen to this on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 85, is uh, performed by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. The song is Neon Cathedral. And uh, this is a it's a song that's sort of about a bar as church. Some lyrics. Got some fire in my belly and a riot in the gut. Bush, bush mills for a Band-Aid, the sweet taste of blood, then I might actually feel something if I don't cover it up. The motel next door, a sign reads vacant. And a truth that's so strong I'd be a fool not to chase it. But yet, I'm a fool and I stay here. Hope these problems drown themselves. I die and wait here. One more. Four more. Fuck it a nightcap. Service starts at 5 tomorrow, and I'll be right back. And then there's this chorus. Underneath this fragile frame lives a battle between pride and shame. But I've misplaced that sense of fright. This crown of thorns is perched atop my spine, but listen closely as I testify. Dependency has been a thief at night. this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week, and what's happening in my meetings and my life this week. Well, the first thing that uh, I should probably say, uh, you may, if you uh, follow us regularly, uh, have noticed that it's actually been two weeks since the the last podcast was posted. And that's because last uh, weekend, when I usually record on the weekend, I I started coming down with a cold, and my voice was not feeling up to, to doing it. Um, and I kind of struggled with the cold most of the week, along with lots of work. So I'm back, took care of myself, got better, and and here I am. The uh, meeting meeting I went to last night, the topic was anger, and uh, is a reading from uh, the book Courage to Change for uh, August 24th. If you want to look it up, and it it talked about rageful anger, but it also talked about the different ways in which uh, we might express anger, whether it's uh, going cold and silent or um, I forget, I forget all of them. Uh, You know, I'm the, I'm the yell and scream kind of guy when I, when I get angry and uh, you know, I was able to reflect on how I have gone from really being a yell, scream, pound the table guy uh, with anger coming out uh, at people uh, at very small provocation because I had this whole pool of, of rage just sort of simmering down inside me. And through the program was able to relieve that and and also to work on more gentle responses to, uh, to anger and also recognizing that, uh, you know, anger is for me, most often a reaction to some other emotions such as fear uh, or feeling threatened in some way, sadness sometimes, uh, that I don't want to face. And so I turn it into anger instead to try to push it away. And knowing that also helps me to uh, not react uh, in certain situations where it would be really inappropriate or to be angry um, without... um, without acting out, I guess is the way to put it. And, uh, so that, that was a, that was a good meeting. Um, yeah. And, uh, other thing that, uh, that I did recently was, uh, I, I work with, uh, youth in, uh, in my church and I work with, uh, youth in a multi-state area to put together, uh, weekend conferences that, uh, bring together, usually between uh, 40 to 90 uh, 
high school age youth for a weekend to, uh, you know, explore spirituality and to, to learn together and to have fun together. And so, uh, we had a meeting recently of the, the group that helps to plan these conferences. And this is a youth led group. So there's three adults and I think eight, eight teenagers, uh, and we guide, but we let them do the work as much as possible. And I have to say that it's only from coming into Al-Anon, finding my way, actually finding my way back to church and finding a connection um, to the spirit there that I actually got into doing this. And what I've learned in Al-Anon really helps me in being able to, to stand back, to not uh, exert my uh, desire to control my uh, my managing and manipulation and mothering, uh, at least I don't think there's too much martyrdom there, uh, and let them you know find their strengths, let them succeed, uh, and it's you know I've learned these skills I've learned these skills here in the program by um, listening to other people, by watching what they do, by uh, being a sponsor, uh, by trying to follow the dictum that we in the Al-Anon program don't give advice. We share our own experience uh, and we let each other find our own path. And, you know, I can let these, these young people find their own path. Uh, and just as I could be there as a support for my loved one in, in her struggle with alcohol, I can be there as a support for these, these young people as they sometimes struggle, sometimes stumble, uh, you know, and letting them stumble, but maybe cushioning the fall. And, and I don't see that as enabling. I see that as, as supporting. Uh, so that's, you know, that's something that, that came into my life and that has been a real joy for me. So upcoming topics, uh, we've still, uh, we're still going to talk about caretaking at some point. Is it caretaking or healthy support? The, uh, the topic that many of you have asked for and some of you have sent in your own sharings, and thank you very much. Uh, triggers. What triggers you? What does it feel like to be triggered? How do you understand being triggered? How is the program helping you to deal with your triggers so that they, they're they not as strong or maybe gone? Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts, your sharing, your experience uh, on that topic. And we'll probably be doing that uh, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, also coming up, since it's uh, coming to the end of August, we'll have September, will be Tradition 9. Tradition 9 says, Our groups as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. So how, do, how does that work for you in your group? How do you apply that tradition in your own life, in your personal life, in your family life? So uh, whatever thoughts, questions, experience, hope you might have, Love to hear from you. Uh, please call or email. Uh, and that works. How does that work? Well, you can call uh, and leave a voicemail at uh, 734-707-8795. Call right now, 734-707-8795, and leave a voicemail. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send us email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, share your experience, strength, and hope, your questions about today's topic of alcoholism or any of our upcoming topics, caretaking, triggers, tradition nine, uh, or if you have another topic you'd like to hear about, uh, let us know. And you can find out everything you need to know about The Recovery Show at our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. So all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, uh, occasional blog, links to the music we play, and some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. You can also join the conversation literally by being a guest host uh, by phone or Skype or Google Hangout or any other electronic medium that, that works for you and me. If you're interested, email feedback at com, and we'll set it up. So we'll take a short break before diving into the mailbag and our second musical selection again, it's available on the website, is Sunday Morning Coming Down, sung by Johnny Cash. 
And, you know, this is just a great old feeling sad country song. Um, again, lyrics. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head that didn't hurt. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. Then I fumbled in my closet through my clothes and found my cleanest dirty shirt. Then I washed my face and combed my hair and stumbled down the stairs to meet the day. And there's nothing short of dying that's half as lonesome as the sound of a sleeping city sidewalk and Sunday morning coming down. Hey, well, we got, um, since it's been two weeks, got a bunch of uh, voicemails and emails uh, here. I want to start with a voicemail from Akila. Hi, Spencer. This is Akila. I just finished listening to the Suffering is Optional episode. I just wanted to say that one of the things Alanon has given me, one of the greatest gifts is that, because um, for me, suffering is just isolation, and the biggest thing I've learned is how to ask for help and that I can ask for help. And that ties a little bit into your Tradition 8 episode, which I haven't listened to yet, but we talked in a meeting about how Tradition 8 also reminds us that we can get out not only um, help in our program, but also outside help is necessary and that helps ease the suffering. Thank you. And thank you, Akila, for uh, reminding me that uh, you know, it's okay to ask for help. Which, again, I mean, I sort of knew that, but I really learned that uh, here in Helena. Got a, an email from Christy about the 4Ms uh, episode. She writes, Being from AA, I don't always hear the slogans from Al-Anon. In fact, I don't know much about Al-Anon at all. But friends of mine are in Al-Anon. One of them tweeted your show today, and I can't help but cry. I never knew I did these things, and I certainly never thought they were defects. But your show rang so true to me. I really needed to hear this today. I was suffering from a deep sense of martyrdom and depression. I kept trying to see my part in the inventory process, but I couldn't. Because, honestly, I didn't know these were defects. And I couldn't have defined manipulation with examples like you did. I didn't know I was manipulating, so thank you. Now I see how I've been trying to control. Christy. And, uh, you know, I wrote back to Christy because... I, I I have this feeling sometimes, I think I've expressed this before, that after I record a show, I'm like, eh, you know, I, I, we could have done a better job with that. Uh, but, okay, I'll put it out there. And then I get something like this email, and I'm like, wow, okay. Um, you know, that that my higher power, our higher powers are speaking through us to say things that somebody out there needs to hear. And so thank you so much, Christy, for letting letting us know that. And I did uh, forward Christy's email to Erica, who was very also um, grateful, appreciative of the of the the kind words. Julie also wrote us about the four M's episode. Uh, she says, "Spencer, such a great episode, and exactly what I needed to hear. I want everyone in my Alani group to hear it. Thank you. I've been learning lately about what is called a non-anxious presence. Google it." It's been very helpful, especially as a Christ follower, as well as someone who can get worked up easily. Many thanks, Julie. And, uh, you know, I haven't actually Googled that. I'm going to have to do that. Uh, Chris had a question. Wrote, hi there. I'm a listener, also a member. I heard you say that we can purchase books online and a portion of the purchase will be donated to y'all. However, I don't see anything about that on your site. What's the scoop? Thanks so much for your service. Love the podcast. It's of tremendous help to me, Chris. And I realized that, yeah, it really was not very obvious. I, I mention it occasionally uh, in the podcast. But so I went and I, I, I told Chris where to look. And then I went and I put a direct link to Amazon um, on the front page. is a little is right under the donation button. And, and it says donate by shopping. Uh, you know, and if you want to go to Amazon and, uh, and buy some stuff and uh, let us get our whatever 5% uh, from, from them, uh, we appreciate it, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. I mean, you know, don't go buy stuff you don't need, okay? I've been there, done that. Uh, so, uh, and, and also for books, there's a uh, books button at the very top of the page. It's, it's kind of subtle, but if you click on that, uh, you see the, the list of books that we've got that uh, 
we eh, recommend is maybe too strong a word, but they're uh, suggested readings. Uh, there, there's a bunch of LNM books, there's some AA books, and then there's some books that are about sort of about recovery in general and people's experiences, uh, some drunk logs and, uh, and other stuff. Check it out. I got another email from Carol. She says, I'm a mother who's enabled my 27-year-old son almost to death. I really need a support group to manage my own life and not manage his. Please send me information regarding this. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to detach myself so he can live a normal and functional life. Um, and, you know, my, res my, my response to Carol was, uh, please find a meeting and go. Find maybe several meetings and go. Um, I also uh, suggested some podcast episodes that uh, I thought might be helpful. Uh, and uh, if you're, you know, looking for a meeting, you don't know where to find a meeting, um, you can go to therecoveryshow.com. Uh, on the right-hand side, partway down under Sites We Like, there's a link to the National Al-Anon website. You can click on that, and they have a big button that says Find a Meeting. You click there, and you got to click several times before you get to, um, hopefully, a list of meetings in your local area, or at least a phone number you can call. Sometimes the, the local office doesn't necessarily have a website. They should. They really should. But they don't always because, you know, volunteers and all that. Uh, so do that uh, if you... Uh, if you you know, aren't so hot on navigating the web or you just can't um, figure out where to click, uh, send me an email, feedback at therecoveryshow.com. Uh, let me know, you know, sort of where you live area. You know, I live in uh, San Francisco. I live in Chicago. And uh, I can send you back a link to the website, hopefully. That will uh, uh, let you find your local meetings. Because that's really, um, as we talked about in face-to-face -face meetings, that... I don't, to me, there's no substitute for, uh, for really talking with somebody else face to face who's been where you've been, who understand what's going on and who has some experience, strength and hope to share with you. So, uh, and, uh, we got some more, uh, voicemail from Akila about our four M's. Hi, Spencer. It's Akila. I just listened to the, I'm calling the spot to the four M's episode. Um, and I would One of the things that we did in my family and that I've stopped doing since I came to the program, but this whole idea of, um, getting back at people so they can see how it feels. So, for example, um, if my mom would ask me to do something and I would say no, then she would say, well, next you know, next time I ask her, she might say no, just so I can see how it feels when someone says no. Um, and that has played out in different ways. And, you know, since coming to the program, I've, you mentioned it, but the say what you mean, mean what you say, and don't say it meanly um, has really helped. The other thing that has helped is just accepting people's no's. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot is my no is a complete sentence. So that if I'm saying no and I expect people to honor that, I have to honor when other people say no. Um, of course, when it comes to my daughter, sometimes I have to override her no because I told, I said, you know, put the dishes in the sink, you know. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is martyrdom. And you talked a lot about how um, you may do something, and it's all motive, right? But I remember once my friend, I told her I would do something, and I wound up having this really bad back problem, and I was in excruciating pain. And so I had to tell her I couldn't go, and so I didn't tell her why. And then I was so angry with her because she was like, well, if you had asked me, I would have done it. And my mom said to me, why didn't you just tell her your back hurts and you can't do it? And I said, she should just know that if I'm saying I can't do it, there's a good reason. But how would she know? I expect everybody to be a mind reader. So now I try to be a little bit more forthcoming. I think I'm going to run out of time. Another thing I wanted to add, too, is um, with manipulation and all that stuff, one of the, the hardest things for me was letting learning to let go of outcomes. Like if I ask somebody, I can't be all caught up in how they're going to respond. And for me, it was always about controlling other people's responses and how they respond to me. 
And with my daughter, I get angry because if she does something, what are other people going to think about? I'm going to get yelled at because she's, you know, a minor. She's late, and they're going to say it's my fault. And so then I ask her so she won't be late, which is part of, um, I don't really like the term mothering, you know, but I get it. And the whole thing, even with her now, I'm learning to have to back off and just say, you know, I help you instead of saying, do it this way because I know better than you. Because sometimes she does know stuff. So I think that's it for now. Hi, Spencer. It's Sheila again. Two more things. The other one was for managing. When I first got in the program, my biggest thing was um, managing. And I hated that my friends always asked me for advice. But because they always asked me for advice, I wanted them to listen to me. And I remember at the very first meeting I went to, I said, if everybody would just do what I tell them, if they would listen to me, their lives would be so much better, and then my life would be better. And at the meeting, they said, keep coming back, and that has served me very well. The other thing I would add is for um, oh crap, for manipulation. One thing we talked about, too, um, and I don't know if you were ever planning to talk about this, but we talked about triangulation. We actually had a meeting about it a couple weeks ago. You know, where you put somebody in the middle and you say, tell so-and-so to do this, or um, I need you to get this done for me through somebody else. So that's also a form of manipulation, um, and probably triangulation could be its own episode. But that's something that I really try to extract myself from so that if I'm in a situation where someone's trying to put me in the middle, and it's usually my parents, I can I can say, no, you can ask yourself, or why don't you ask? Oh, one other thing. I keep adding other things. But manipulation was so ingrained in me. And when I got in a program and I would say to my mom, if you want me to do something, just ask me to do it. And it made her so angry because she said, you act like I'm trying to manipulate you. And I told her, I said, I didn't say you were trying to manipulate me because I didn't think she was doing it on purpose. That's just how she knew how to do it. I said, I just would prefer if you asked me outright instead of um, instead of trying to talk around it. And so she's gotten better, but that's something that, you know, this is just a way of being a program helps me and my family, and I think sometimes that's important to talk about too. Um, okay, I am done now unless – after I listen to your weekend recovery and everything, I have more to share. Bye. And and thank you so much, Akila, for for all of that. Uh, really appreciate your uh, your participation uh, in the podcast. Keep coming back. Thanks. So, what about music? Huh? I mean, you know, I really, really, really liked having the music in the show. I really miss it. I do. I listen to the show, and I'm like, I hear myself talking about the music or Erica talking about the music, or Maria talking about the music, and then I'm like, ready for the music, and it's not there. I mean, I, you know, I have a little musical interlude, uh, some music that I actually have uh, permission to play. And and it's on the website and all that, but, you know, it's it's. I understand it's not the same thing. Um, I'm just trying to, uh, trying to be legal here, uh, trying not to, I want to be able to keep going, and if, uh, you know, the music companies come down and say, you owe us all this money. I'm not going to be able to keep going. Maybe that won't happen. And, but, uh, you know, and also, uh, as they say in AA, this is a program of rigorous honesty. And, and to be honest, um, you know, I should be following, uh, following the, the law. So anyway, can't play music in the show. Uh, but what, see, the thing is that, that I find meaning and understanding often through music, through poetry, through art of various sorts. It's not just words. It's not just thoughts. It's not just intellectual. The music often brings in, uh, you know, emotion that I just don't get in the words. And, uh, and so I keep doing this because it's important to me um, because, and because I enjoy doing it. <laughs> uh, and I enjoy hearing, you know, your ideas for songs. Uh, uh, so keep sending those in. The other thing that I've done is is almost always I find more songs than the three breaks that we have uh, in in the show, and so starting with this episode, I'm putting up a, a Spotify playlist uh, with uh, all of the songs that I thought about as as I was putting the show together. Uh, 
uh, with the three that I actually picked at the top of the list. And I know some people don't like Spotify because like you have to log in and stuff. And I understand that, but you know, it's another way that hopefully I can share with you, um, different, different artists views on, uh, or related to the topic that we're talking about. And, and maybe one of them will speak to you, uh, just as they speak to me. I want to thank Harriet, Ruth, and Becky again for their donations to uh, help keep the recovery show on the air. We do have expenses. They run about $60 a month, and any help you can give, whether it's by uh, donating through PayPal with the button on the website or shopping at Amazon and getting us a commission, whatever, or if it's by telling your friends about the show or just keep on listening because we are here for you. The last song selection is called Drinking Problem. It's by Rehab. And again, uh, recovery, therecoveryshow.com slash 85 is where you can find the link and you can find the Spotify playlist. I mean, you know, I, do I need to say very much about this song? Uh, it, I, I had a really hard time picking just a few lyrics because the whole thing is just like one little drinking vignette after another. Uh, but this is what I picked out. Come from a long line of alcoholics living from toilet to toilet, you call it. I'm calling hotlines, serving all over yellow lines, drinking moonshine. Damn, that was a stop sign. I ain't doing good, but I'll be fine, Dano. Where's that cheap wine? Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you're facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. Understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time. 